Welcome to the Parlay Podcast, a thought-provoking and entertaining podcast that breaks down the pathology of speech, language, and other processes that affect the way we communicate on a daily basis. Professor of Speech and Language Pathology, Chantal Mayer-Crittenden, hosts a bevy of guests who help her explore and explain the diverse landscape of speech, language, and their relationship with the brain. Okay, so here we are, day two of the Symposium on Research and Child Language Disorders. Uh, this is Chantal Mayer-Crittenden, the host of the Parley Podcast, and I am here again with Dr. Michelle Minor-Carriveau, uh, Associate Professor at Laurentian University. We are at a beautiful uh, Papavero, an Italian restaurant on Wilson Street here in Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, we attended a few posters, a post- the poster session, so we did get a chance to talk to a few poster presenters, and we also had a talk by, let me just go through my program here. So it was uh, Professor Kate Nation from uh, University of Oxford titled Charting the Development of Lexical Quality in Children's Reading and Language Development. So I found this uh, quite interesting. Um, And she did mention at the beginning of her talk that all of her data uh, are posted in um, open science framework. uh, So you can access that if you're interested in finding out more. So she starts by talking about reading comprehension. What do we need for reading comprehension? Well, we need decoding. Uh, We also need, obviously, linguistic comprehension. And that kids need both components. Um, neither one of them are sufficient, so they, they need to be taught in such a way that fosters the development of these two components, reading, comp- or decoding, and linguistic comprehension. Um, and then she, I liked how she said that l- reading is laborious, it's hard, it takes time, kids often struggle, but they will eventually uh, get there. She starts by talking about how reading experience really matters. So Michelle, do you want to touch base on that? For sure. So uh, essentially, the more you read, the better you're, you you become at it. So it's that Matthew effect. So the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. But it's important to remember that as um, teachers of reading, which, you know, speech language pathologists are, uh, it's really important to target the poor people, the people who may have more difficulty accessing that language. And one of the ways that she talks about um, uh, achieving that goal is to make sure that the lexical quality uh, is high. So you need orthography, you need phonology, you need semantics, which is Perfetti's model. Um, she talks about uh, exposure to certain words or to all words. So frequency is important. Frequency is required, but varying leads to better learning. So seeing the same word in a hundred different areas is better than seeing the word a hundred times, but in in the same book, for example. Uh, So high semantic diversity, uh, which are words that are uh, uh, easy to to pick out, easy to identify what the meaning is, regardless of the sentence, um, are contrasted to low semantic diversity words. And children need to know how how to access both, but they can only do that with their um, prior knowledge and with oral language language as well. So she does talk about how oral language ties into um, uh, the simple view of reading, uh, which uh, she presented very well. Uh, She also talked about how different, uh, the question she poses is how different is spoken language from written language? Uh, What does book language bring to the table that you don't get from spoken language? Because our language, oral language is pretty simplified. Uh, So if we never expose children to books, then we're not giving them that diversity that they require. But the bottom line is, she says that it's not quite, um, you don't have to see a word many times to recognize it later. 
So it's fairly simple once you know the basics for reading, but for the children who are struggling, they, they may very well need a lot more support. Yes, and during, uh, right after the talk, I looked at the Twitter feed, and so a lot of people are saying just that. So we've got Dr. Lisa Archibald from London, Canada, who says, you know, I'm happy to hear about the benefits of reading experience once those basic skills are in place. So a lot of people commented on that. And I really do love that, you know, the term uh, book language. So we also have um, uh, Huzana Komisidu, who says that experience words and syntactic structures and language in a rich context. So that book language um, is really important. Again, we have uh, Amanda Bins from Toronto, Canada, who says, book language opens up the world of decontextualized language for children and provides exposure to different syntactic structure from the spoken language young children tend to hear. So, of course, this is a direct quote from um, Professor Kate uh, Nation. This reminds me a little bit of um, yesterday's talk. Um, by Caroline uh, Greiner de Magalhais, who stressed the importance of teaching phonics. So initial reading should not encourage contextual guessing. So these, these children really need to have the foundations before we start talking about all of um, um, what Dr. Kate Nation is, is alluding to with reading experience and semantic um, frequency and whatnot. Yes, and she also talked about how uh, less diverse context is super important early on, but over time, it is the semantic diversity that will be more helpful and will drive the learning. So you really have to know how to balance both, uh, and it's not helpful to anyone to just give them those, those very uh, diverse words when they don't actually have the basics. So you, you must also um, not... You must be guarded against using words in isolation like word lists, uh, as Beck does, or as Beck guards against, um, because you rely on the context to be able to extract meaning. So if all we're doing is presenting word lists, which is very current in a, in a phonics mode or in a phonics-only mode, uh, then it's, uh, it can be detrimental, especially to the child who may not have that anterior knowledge to draw from. So it's a, it's a pretty big problem in the schools, given what we know about how reading works, because we, we know a lot about how it works and how it's acquired. Uh, the theory is pretty strong on that. Um, it's pretty surprising to see that some people will favor uh, an approach that does not integrate oral language, meaning, uh, anterior knowledge, uh, and all of those, uh, the, the determinants of being able to, to decode and to, to, know, to, to draw meaning from what we're reading. So this brings us to several psycholinguistic models, of course. Um, there's a lot of uh, folks out there who really try to represent by using models, how children read, how did they learn to read, what did they need. So she starts off by talking, of course, about the um, simple view of reading model. Um, Michelle already touched base on that. And then uh, we've, she, she adds on to Perfetti's model, um, which adds that whole lexical quality component. Um, so you've got the lexical quality that feeds into um, that independent word reading. And then you've got the whole linguistic component. So um, what uh, Dr. Nation is trying to establish is what drives variation in lexical quality for children and for words. And so they're adding on um, another component, which is that whole language processing, which then gives learning opportunity. And then it goes back to the, she calls it the, the loop. So um, you know, if, you, if you read a word for the first time, you're going to read it differently. Um, then when you read that word a second time, a third time, a fourth time, so you kind of learn something new every time. So really, um, it's developmental over time. 
Yes, and she refers to that as the word growing up. You know, what do we know about how the word grows up? So I thought that that was pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Um, she made a, an important parallel, I think, for any speech language pathologist who's used to using sentence repetition as uh, one of the subtests that we use to, to try to identify DLD more accurately. Um, and she says, you know, in a sentence repetition task, if you're good at it, well, then you're good at lots of things. But if you're not so great at it, it's really more difficult to pinpoint why it is that you're not great at it. So that's the missing piece of the puzzle. So in terms of what semantic diversity brings to the table, they're, they're really still trying to discover that. And I think that they have a lot of good, uh, good uh, budding researchers uh, on the way with, uh, with their, um, in their lab. So she looked at non-diverse and diverse words. So an example would be um, a word like uh, chunk, for example. That is a very high diverse word. I mean, chunk could be a chunk of anything, a chunk of time, a chunk of, of wood, a chunk of whatnot. Whereas she gave our, yeah, a chunk of chocolate, of course. Um, she gave also the example of a low diverse word, it would be asparagus. I mean, asparagus is an asparagus. It's, it's food, you can't really use it differently. So she did look at the effect of diversity in uh, children's ability to um, make a lexical decision on a word and, and various other tasks that she, she had looked at. She also looked at the same word that may have a diverse meaning or a non-diverse meaning. So for example, the example she gave, gave was accumulated. So in a diverse context, we can talk about accumulating wealth, accumulating email, accumulating um, uh, fluid in our lungs versus accumulating proof for a jury or accumulating evidence or accumulating, um, um, I think she used evidence twice. So it, the police will accumulate a lot, a lot of evidence. So when you're using those kinds of contexts, the meaning derived from the word accumulated is a lot more transparent than the one where um, the, uh, the settings or the, uh, the semantic around the word is a lot more diverse. And one of the questions at the end was exactly surround was surrounding that. They said, well, did you control for the words in the sentences and how did that contribute to the people um, in the study, recognizing the word or not recognizing the word. So in other words, are they using their knowledge of the rest of the sentence, which is often a, um, uh, a technique or a strategy that we'll give students. When they're not sure of a word, we'll say, well, read the rest of the sentence and see if you can figure it out. Now, some students can do that very easily, but the, the, harder, the, the, the more difficult it is for the child to do that, uh, often you end up with children who are um, uh, on the, uh, the DLD spectrum somewhere uh, who may not be able to extra extrapolate that meaning uh, as easily as someone who has a lot of anterior knowledge. But she does say, you know, if kids can't read, giving them variation won't help. No. So it's nice that she's looking at both of those views. So they need to learn how to read first. So bottom line, once the uh, reading basics are in place, experience really does matter. And a lot of people were tweeting about that after the fact. So um, I think that was the message that most of us um, took from this really, really good talk. So we can wrap it up just to give her a bit of a shout out. She was quite uh, adamant about uh, uh, stating two things. She said it at the beginning and at the end. So what she is not saying is that begin beginning readers learn written words from contextual guessing. And she's also not saying that initial reading instruction should encourage contextual guessing and teach multi-cue uh, multi strategies. And at the end of the day, we need to be more like Matilda. <laughs> 
you know, everyone should make time to read. Um, not everybody, you know, has a love for reading. Maybe it's because we don't have that gene that we were, uh, Dr. Lundy was talking about yesterday. But uh, she does definitely stress the importance of exposure, the expor- or experience rather, with reading. Um, and that, you know, the more you read, like Michelle said, the better you will be at reading. Uh, we did also attend the poster session, so that was this morning. Beautiful venue. It was overlooking the lake. I couldn't tell you exactly which lake. I think it might be, um, I don't know, I won't even take a guess. I'll, I'll look it up for later. Um, but there were, I believe, about 40-some posters. Yes, 45 posters. Um, I had to cut it short because I uh, had a little talk with um, Tiffany Hogan. So she is from Boston and the host from the uh, See, Hear, and Speak podcast. So from one podcaster to another, we had a lot to chat about. So I did uh, you know, speak to the uh, authors of uh, the poster titled Caregiver and Children's Use of Non-Mainstream Dialect Features a comparison of preschool children at risk for language disorders and same dialect peers with typical language skills. So I thought that was very interesting by Alison Hendricks and collaborators from the University of Buffalo, um, just to look at um, how some of those kids didn't use the same dialect features and then their parents. And at what age should we expect those features to um, disappear from their um Uh, spontaneous language sample. So that was really interesting. I also talked to the people at uh, One Size Did Not Fit All, how tailoring morphosyntax test items according to language dominance improves classification of DLD and bilinguals. So this is by Amy Pratt and collaborators from the University of California. Uh, So again, they... they, um, were able to find specific test items that better identified children with DLD according to their level of exposure. So again, uh, very interesting um, information there. And uh, I briefly spoke to the authors of Favorite Game or Sport Task in Swedish, Oral and Written Performance in School-Aged Children with and Without DLD by Anna Eva uh, Hallin. Um, Again, from... um, Karolinska Institutet from Swedish, from Sweden. Um, so yeah, they, they looked at the, you know, the richness that you get from these, uh, so expository tasks. So this reminded me of uh, Dr. Heilman's work. Um, and so how this is great for older kids, so 10 to 12 year olds. And uh, their findings suggested that the favorite game or sport task, so that expository task, can capture differences between Swedish-speaking children with and without DLD and could be used as a complement to standardized tests in clinical practice. Michelle, how about you? You were uh, able to stick around a little bit longer than myself, so what did you find? Mm-hmm. So in addition to some of the ones that you mentioned, um, I stuck around to speak to, um, let me see, it's a little bit small, to uh, Claribel Gabas from the School of Communication Sciences and Disorders from Florida State University. And she had a very interesting study um, looking at teachers' interactions and what teachers are, um, are teaching younger children who are in the emergent literacy stages. So she looks at uh, composing, which relies on your on their their oral oral knowledge she looks at spelling so she's teach they're teaching them the the preliminary basics to lexical and syntax and all of that but she also looks at handwriting so how are teachers um, providing feedback how are they teaching this information to the kids um, so they have a lot um, a lot of videos that they have to watch many many times over each with their each with their um, am I on 
I am. So each with their the the, the study aims in mind, and um, she was saying that the 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 richness of the teacher instruction is certainly paramount in uh, ensuring that children are accessing these uh, these written language component because they're actually setting the stage for. The, the more complex language uh, literacy learning tasks that are coming uh, in the years to come. So uh, they, they do have video from, um, I think it's from JK to grade one, and now they're looking at grade two and, and on. Um, another one that I, that I stopped in front of, I didn't get to chat with them because they were fairly busy, but it's from Lund University, and uh, there are many authors. So it's Hansen, Sandgren, Anderson, uh, Roskvist, and, and, and collaborators. And they were looking at factors influencing self four core language scores in a bilingual population. And uh, I loved the first sentence in the problem for this uh, poster, and I tweeted about it. Uh, and she states that monolingual assessment entails risk for over-identification of language disorder in bilingual populations. And that certainly um, resonates uh, far and wide for us because we, we deal with a population that uh, is very... Um, I think all of the kids that we see are, are bilingual. And one of their findings was that the, they identified 30% of monolinguals as having DLD, and they had identified 80% of bilinguals as having DLD in their corpus. So I'm pretty sure not all of the 80% of the bilinguals uh, have that uh, disorder, but this measure does not take into consideration the variability of their language skills, and uh, there may be some work to be done there for, uh, for us later on. So I would say that today was a huge bang for our buck in terms of uh, all of the, the takeaway notes that we caught from the, uh, the, the oral presentations and the, the poster presentations. And this afternoon, we're headed for three submitted oral presentations that uh, will enlighten us on various topics, uh, such as, um, oh, do you like me? Differences in learning social cues in adolescence with DLD, a novel gesture production and longitudinal, longitudinal language outcomes in children with DLD, and word learning children with and without developmental language disorders, so learning rates and long-term retention abilities. So we're in for another afternoon of, uh, of, uh, of heavy, heavy uh, uh, new knowledge for us, I think. Absolutely. And uh, when I was meeting with uh, Tif Tiffany Hogan, we decided uh, to invite her uh, on the Parley podcast to discuss tomorrow's um, invited speakers. So the talk titled Child, Child Language Disorder, an open conversation about identification and terminology by Mabel Rice, Rhea Paul, Susan Ellis Weismer, um, will be the, the highlight of tomorrow. And we're going to discuss it after the fact and uh, uh, Tiffany will likely cross post that on the uh, See, Hear and Speak podcast as well. So we will uh, summarize this afternoon's oral presentations and uh, that'll be it for today. Oh, and poster presentations. There's another poster presentation later. What a great end to the day, uh, day two at the Symposium on Research in Child Language Disorders, commonly known as SRCLD. Uh, so like Michelle said, there were three submitted oral presentations today. Um, and the first one titled, Do You Like Me? Differences in Learning Social Cues in Adolescence with DLD. Um, so the um, PhD... <clears throat> I guess she's not a PhD student anymore. She finished her PhD. Clara Forrest was not able to present, so it was her director, Michelle St. Clair, who presented. And this really kind of touches home for me because I've said this many times on the podcast. I do have a daughter with DLD, 
uh, a tween actually, and I'm always so concerned about her social skills. I do notice little nuances when she's with in a group of friends, and I sometimes wonder if she's catching all, all of those very subtle cues and if she's missing out or if she'll know if someone doesn't like her or likes her or, or whatnot. So I, I had a, a personal interest in this uh, particular topic. So she starts off by talking about how uh, there's not a straight relationship between severity of language disorder and social and emotional problems and that sometimes social cognition difficulties may underpin some of these problems. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, a lot of literature has shown that children with DLD have increased rates of anxiety, depression, and social difficulties. So there's definitely a lot of work to be done still in this area, and there's still a lot of unknown variables. So uh, among her study aims, there were three. So they were um, evaluating performance differences uh, on the CELT, with, which is the social evaluative, um, I didn't note the, the whole test, but in the adolescents with DLD and typical language development. So they're comparing uh, the two populations. Uh, the second aim was to evaluate the differences in rates of parent and self-report social and emotional difficulties for both DLD and um, typical language developing groups. And the third aim was um, to ask the question, do differences in the CELT task mediate the differences in socio-emotional problems between both the TLD and uh, DLD groups? Oh, okay, I just found the name of or what CELT stands for. So uh, Social Evaluative Learning Task. And so essentially, um, they were presented with a couple of words and they had to judge if that word represented themselves or not. Um, so it started out, the computer would, uh, you know, say, hi, my name is Sam. So the child um, was presented with word pairs. Uh, and we were told after the fact that the uh, researchers had verified that the children understood all of the words presented to them. And one of the words corresponded to what the computer thought of the child. And the other did not correspond to what the computer thought of the child. And the child had to select the word which he or she thought best fit with what they think of themselves, right? Or what they think the computer thinks about them. Right, mm -hmm. what they think the computer thinks about them, you're right. And they also had to do that with what they thought the computer would think about the other, and the other in this case was, you know, George, like Curious George, the, the monkey, so. Right. So she did start out by saying that research has shown that we naturally have a positive bias. So we will, you know, select the more positive word um, that the computer would describe us with. We don't tend to think that people automatically don't yeah. like us. I was actually surprised because I thought that we're more we're harder on ourselves and maybe maybe children. I don't know. I don't know if she if it was overall or I was thinking the same thing and yeah. all, I I thought well someone with low self esteem might mm -hmm. always select oh well I don't think this person likes me or yeah. I, I think that they think I'm in a you know a negative adjective so uh, that surprised me as well. But maybe the age of the kids they tend to be more positive or have a, a more positive outlook uh, on their sense of self. Mm -hmm. um, but in the end. And what they discovered was that adolescents with DLD have more difficulty with learning uh, negative social uh, with um, negative social evaluative learning. So there was no difference between DLD and TLD kids in the positive social evaluative learning, uh, which seems to reflect a lack of ability to understand and up and update others' negative social cues. So I had tweeted um, and was uh, was mildly corrected by uh, Claire Forrest. So I had tweeted, you know, that there was a very informative session uh, that adolescents with DLD easily recognized 
when the computer disliked them, but they also more easily recognized that the computer liked the other. So when it came to someone else, they chose the more positive um, adjectives. And when it came to them, they were harder on themselves. And so I uh, assumed that that indicated that they have more difficulty ignoring negative cues. And uh, Claire um, retweeted or, or commented that adolescents with DevLang Disk, so DLD, made more errors when learning the computer disliked them, which is good in a way as they don't focus on negative mm -hmm. cues, but it still points to difficulty in social understanding. And that comes back to what you were saying at the beginning, Chantal, with, you know, are children with uh, de developmental language disorder able to understand when someone doesn't like them? So will they invite them to parties and then be told no? I mean, we tend to live in a, in a, in a world where if I'm extending an invitation, I'm actually being very, it's like an act of humility. Uh, I would hope that I'm extending that invitation to people who are going to say yes. Uh, so if they're not able to pick up on those social cues, then they may not understand that someone doesn't have an affinity to them. So they may be more um, uh, exposed to rejection. And I, to me, that's, that's a sad part, mm -hmm. uh, unless I, I misunderstood, but that's, uh, that's my takeaway. Yes, and then she did go on to say that adolescents with DLD do not perceive themselves as having more emotional or social difficulties. But my, so this is more their perception, this study. Other studies have shown, like, I, like she demonstrated at the beginning, that they do have more emotional and social difficulties. And so if they're not perceiving it... Then, I, then they're at risk for um, extending invitations yeah. mm -hmm. where others who are more intuitive right. might shy away from that. And I'm not saying shying away from that is a good thing. Maybe we should go out on a limb, but typically yeah. you won't invite someone over if you know they already don't like yeah. you. Because parents do report increased difficulties, and that's, that's kind of how I started off by that's saying. Right. And then there's uh, you know some more in her discussion here how maybe parents are over-reporting or maybe the adolescents are under-reporting. So this, this just shows the need for more research in this field. Um, so I think that uh, any, anyone out there who is interested in this definitely has uh, tons and tons of questions that remain to be answered. Absolutely. Uh, and so they replicated this finding in children uh, at risk of DLD in the Millennium Cohort Sample, which is a, has a, an, an extremely high number, so 891 students. Um, but they're, they're questioning, um, or there, there needs to be more, um, more studies to answer uh, some of the questions that they were left with, which were, uh, why are these children not more self-aware or more aware of their difficulties? Uh, and again, you know, is it the parents over-reporting, adolescents under-reporting? I think that that remains to be seen, and I, I believe that they're working on that. Mm -hmm. All right, so the next one, novel gesture production and longitudinal language outcomes in children with DLD. So again, we, we got the um, thesis director, uh, Lisa Goffman, that presented because her PhD student was ill, uh, Leah Factor. So she wasn't there to present uh, her work, but uh, Dr. Goffman did that for her. And this reminds me of, uh, in episode, episode 10, um, we did talk about how children with DLD might also have or do have some motor difficulties as well with uh, Sean Ziegenfuse. And so this tied into that nicely. So she starts off by saying that the rationale for this study is that uh, children with GLD uh, traditionally have language impairment with prominent morphosyntax deficits. However, like I just said, motor impairments are also documented, including gesture. 
and that children with DLD show phonological deficits in gesture. So both Michelle and I kind of looked at each other during the presentation because we're not familiar with the terminology here with regards to gesture. This is not something that we study. Um, and so I get, we, we understood by the end of the presentation, uh, maybe you want to talk about that, what she meant by the phonological deficits in gesture. So they were looking at uh, hand shape, path and orientation. So those are the three elements that are re required when you're signing. Uh, your hand has to take a specific shape, it has to follow a direction, and the orientation of your hands, whether they're uh, your your um, your palms are facing down, facing up, facing or, or sideways, or facing each other, uh, that's very important when you're 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 assessing this kind of a task. And you'd have to see Michelle as she's talking; she's <laughs> she's gesturing. We're we're French, from, uh, native French speakers, so she did say gesture is frequently used to facilitate conceptual thinking, and I exactly. think or conceptual learning, and we we can definitely attest to that. This was a, if this was a video, I think that I would have made that made that case in point just as the speaker had. So the, the unfamiliarity with uh, phonological gestures, um, I think that I may have misunderstood it to mean when they have phonological deficits in their articulation, which I do know she alluded to, but she also referred to phonological deficits in the gestures. So in my mind, I was thinking, would that more be um, like a, a difference in morph? So in morphing your, your hands when it comes to gesturing? So again, this is outside my wheelhouse. So mm -hmm. anyone who's watched this presentation, uh, you know, mm -hmm. please feel free to uh, to comment or to, yeah. uh, to add information. But she did say, and I, I wrote this, I'm just looking at my notes. She said, we're calling them phonological. We can debate on what to call them. So there I we think go. we, whatever, call it whatever you want, but this is what she's referring to. Exactly. So they were looking at whether or not the phonological errors in their hands matched what they do with their mouth. So I think that that's where we kind of got caught on there. So, mm -hmm. um, but definitely they were wanting to know if this persisted over time and if the, if the, um, the gestures that they used with their, with their hands to designate the new words that they had learned, if they improved uh, to typical levels over time. Mm -hmm. So they took measurements at two different moments. Um, I'm trying to, I'll have to pause this for a sec and look at my notes to see what the <laughs> interval was. Okay, in reading the abstract here, we have uh, 28 preschool children, 14 DLD, 14 typically developing, participated in a novel gesture learning task across three years. So you've got uh, year one and then year three. They did some standardized language, speech, and motor assessment collected you know, at each point. So what they found was that phonological deficits in novel gesture production observed at year one did not persist for children with DLD. So eventually they did, they did catch up. Uh, both hand shape and orientation at year one uh, predicted language outcomes for children with DLD at year three, but the path did not, which is a little odd because again, the path has to do with uh, temporal organization and we all know that children with, with DLD do struggle with spatial temporal uh, organization as well. Um, it did pre predict uh, phonetic ac accuracy in gestural production at year one uh, as it relates to fine motor outcomes at year three. Uh, or no, that was no, a question. Didn't. That was a question that they were mm -hmm. asking. So this is what I have in front of you. Right. Year one did not relate to year three manual dexterity, which leads us to believe that perhaps um, there's a linguistic uh, or system involved here. The, so the deficit did not persist, but hand shape and path were more accurate than orientation. 
as they were deeming that it carries the semantic burden. So how they're making those links, uh, Chantal and I were, were wondering, you know, I'm sure that somewhere if we read the study, they have uh, the underpinnings, the theor- theoretical underpinnings mm-hmm. for that, but it's uh, it's foreign to us. So we're yeah. going to take their word for it that there's a link there. <laughs> well, she did say there is a shared general cognitive, is that what you just said? Shared uh, general cognitive mechanism that subserves the language as well as the motor deficits observed in children with DLD. Mm-hmm. Which is quite interesting. So they wanted to know um, how does like accuracy in gesture at year one, so when they're four or five years, relate to later language outcomes. And so for children with DLD, but not their TD peers, um, year one hand shape and oriented orientation predicted year three language, which is mm-hmm. so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then weaker production of gesture predict later language outcomes, but not fine motor outcomes, which is kind of in line with what I just said. So this is reflective of phonological sequencing, not fine motor skill. Exactly. And one of the um, the comments that was made or brought up when they, they open, uh, open the mic up for questioning is that, you know, they all came to this conclusion that some of the language measures that should be the, bre- the best predictors are not. So what they might have thought at the outset um, that the, they weren't able to demonstrate, which is a little bit surprising, uh, the same is true for oral language. So we're not, we have a lot of work to do there as well. I think that our work is cut out for us and everyone uh, who presented at SRCLD uh, is really chipping away at, at mm-hmm. many of the questions and many of the pieces of the puzzle required uh, to allow us to, to accurately measure what it is we're trying to measure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then she did you know, specify that this was a very constrained task. There was no speech, no sound. It was very controlled environment. Does not have ecological validity, but it's it's, it's just part of a piece of the puzzle. So we're we're getting there slowly but surely. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the next one was by um, Catherine Gordon. Word learning in children with and without DLD learning rates and long term retention abilities. So here we learned a bunch of new words that aren't really words. We talked a lot about the uh, do verb. No. Um, So this was a a non-word teaching task to see how children with DLD and without DLD learn new words over about a one-month period. And what they were looking at is how many more exposures does it take for the DLD kids to be able to integrate that word in their lexicon and match their uh, their LD or their 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 typical their typically developing peers. So one of the links that um, was made to the, one of the previous presentations where, forget which speaker said, you know, we want to know how a, lear, uh, how a word grows up. I think it was uh, Kate Nation. So she said, uh, it's, it would be nice to see how a word grows up. But in one of the slides that you can't see because it's a podcast, but I tweeted about it. Um, Gordon illustrates uh, learning a word form and the, the phonological precision uh, that changes over time. And so in my mind, it was kind of coming full circle because that is a little bit of a glimpse in terms of how a word grows up orally. But Kate Nation was looking at that in terms of written language, mm-hmm. how the word grows up uh, with each increased exposure to the written language mm-hmm. and to the written word. But it's the same thing for, for when you're hearing a word. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we, we already know this. We already know that kids with DLD will need more exposure to learn words to the same level as children with TD. There's been a lot of research on this and, you know, the research has shown that it takes about one to three times number of exposure um, for DLD kids more than the typically developing peers. So the deficits in phonological memory, uh, working memory, which have been documented by Archibald and Gathercole and Archibald and Joannius and uh, many others, um, 
are demonstrate that they are characteristic of children with DLD. However, there is a lot of heterogeneity, so we're not really sure, um, you know, how much input is required for the words to to stick and for the the phonological representation to be mapped in the brain. Mm-hmm. And we really need, as clinicians, as researchers, to understand how much experience is needed to support production of new words to really tailor our interventions appropriately for children with DLD. So uh, that was kind of um, what was steering this research. So by training these kids to the different criterion, which were non-words, and there was a discussion regarding, we've now taught DLD kids words that don't exist. What are they going to do with those words? How did you pass ethics? Uh, I think bottom line is that they weren't harmed in this study. They'll probably just not use these words ever again, or they will use them because they believe that they're, mm-hmm. they, they've given them some semantic meaning. But how, how um, will they, if given this training, how will they demonstrate uh, how will D- children with DLD demonstrate um, their performance with respect to um, retaining these words than uh, children with typical uh, mm-hmm. language development? What I thought was interesting, so she compared children's uh, non-repetition by a percentage of phonemes correct, mm-hmm. as well as language score. So she had, um, obviously the DLD kids had poor language scores, but some had high non-repetition scores and some had low non-repetition scores. And then for the typically la- typically developing groups, she had some that had language scores that were just, you know, average around the 100 standard deviation score, some that were 100 to 115, and then some were somewhat that, blah, it's the end of the day, folks, sorry, some that were above uh, 115. So that would be more than one standard deviation above the mean. And essentially, um, we're seeing that when you're comparing your DLD kids to these typically developing kids, the more the well, I need to pause. Pickle. Okay, I decided to leave that in. You know, we're human and it's been two full days of this conference. So what I'm trying to say is, if you're saying, all right, a kid with DLD needs to hear a word one and a half more times than a typically developing child, it depends on that typically developing child's language competency level. So if it's a child who is at above one standard deviation from the mean, that's your one and a half. If it's a child who's just functioning at the mean, then they typically developing uh, or the DLD kid needs to hear that word one more time than that kid. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's basically the higher the um, language competency is for that typically developing kid. um, If you're comparing that kid to a DLD kid, that DLD kid will need to hear way more. So, um, so in your classroom, it's, yeah. uh, the takeaway message was super important because she said in in, in the real world, uh, we'd hope that people would, or SLPs would consult with the classroom teacher and say, hey, you know, which words are you planning on teaching, uh, you know, the kids this week, maybe I can get a bit of a jumpstart for the, the DLD kids and I'm going to start doing some pre-teaching, which is, you know, a practice that we often, um, that we often favor. So if the comparative group in her case, that her, her, her classroom, if it's a strong group, I may need to give my child or my mm-hmm. DLD kid more of a head start. But if it's just, you know, a, 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 average. an average group, mm-hmm. well, then maybe, you know, to get them to where their typically developing peers are, I may need less time. But I have mm-hmm. to consider both of those options. So uh, and the inverse, uh, the, conversely, if your DLD kid has was had a, a poorer uh, representation on the non-word repetition task, mm-hmm. well, they may need 
twice the exposure or two times more exposures to that word before they are able to, you know, um, internalize it and use it in, in, in different contexts and whatnot. Again, keeping in mind what that average means for the classroom that you're referring to. Exactly. So the relative deficit of these DLD kids depends on their own phono, uh, phonological working memory, so non-repetition scores, and on the comparison group, whether it be the high language skills group or the average skills group. So I think <laughs> I think we got it. That that was that that was the takeaway message. So it's harder for DLD to get that initial representation of the word, but once they've got it, they've got it. So if you knew that the preschool teacher was going to represent was going to present uh, a certain word or a family of words the next week based on a theme, uh, you could certainly pre-teach those words so that the child wouldn't be quite so lost and they would have a better phonological representation and they'll be able to use that word mm -hmm. like they're typically developing peers in class. Yeah, which supports the need to really focus our intervention on real-life situations, school-based, you know, um, objectives and, and whatnot. So, yeah, you're going to say something? Yeah, there is one caveat. So, she talked about how this protocol is highly supportive of word learning. So, it's kind of like the best possible scenario mm -hmm. in which... A child could be introduced to a word with all of the supports and the and the the, um, the visual support and the auditory support and the one-on-one -on -one and there's no background noise and there's no mm -hmm. figure ground to compete with. So this is the best possible scenario and that's the kind of exposure that's required more than they're typically developing peers. So add to that the busyness of the classroom, um, the higher the higher noise uh, signal to noise ratio, all of those things will compete for attention. So mm -hmm. you may need to bump that up based on again the the the, um, the environment in the classroom so it's the optimal setting it's not the typical setting mm -hmm. absolutely so that was um the three uh submitted oral presentations we did attend the poster presentation um so there were a lot of interesting posters again um probably about 40 45 so we did go around and talk to a few presenters there so I was particularly interested in the poster by uh, Kirsten Hannig and collaborators by the University of Utah, uh, fam familial overlap between SLI and ADHD, an exploratory study. And so here they wanted to see um, the possibility of elevated familial risk between SLI and ADHD. And essentially what they found was that... Um, there was an elevated familial risk of ADHD for siblings of children with SLI, but not parents. And so, you know, someone who has um, SLI might have a sibling with ADHD, but not necessarily a parent with ADHD. Conversely, there was a familiar risk rate of SLI for siblings and not parents of children with ADHD. So um, there's a unidirectional risk of ADHD here for siblings of children with SLI. So I thought that was quite interesting. Uh, Michelle, do you have any that you wanted to uh, speak on? Yes, so I uh, I stopped by a few posters. Some of them I just uh, grabbed a snapshot and I'm going to uh, reach out to the researchers. But one of the ones um, that I stopped to speak to was uh, by Michelle Linhart, uh, Stacy Pavelko, Linda Freeman, and Geraldine Timler from James Madison University. And their poster was on syntax interventions for students who struggle with literacy, a systematic review. And what was appealing to me was that uh, there are way too many uh, um, papers to list, but they really gave a beautiful overview. It's it's well thought out. It's um, The methodology is, is very thorough. And so anyone who works on syntax, and I certainly do, uh, in, in its written form, uh, but it's really a great 
tool to be able to identify what helps and what doesn't help. And they did have um, a section for oral syntax or written syntax. Now, granted, French syntax is not the same as English syntax. It's not necessarily heard as much um, on specific words. But anyway, we could get into that. And uh, I'll save that for another uh, another podcast. But it was really interesting to, to have a conversation with her about why is it that in English, morphological or morphology and syntax are grammatical markers that tend to um, help us identify which kids may or may not suffer from DLD. And it's not so in French. So, um, of course, it's, it may not be as audible, but the written syntax is very different. And so can that be used as a, as a marker mm-hmm. uh, later on? That remains to be seen. Um, I also stopped by Monique Charest and Melissa Uh, Scotulus and Phyllis Schneider, and I'm not sure that I said that well, so Phyllis, you can uh, correct us, by her poster um, on like lexical diversity in the narratives of children with typical language development and developmental language disorders. So um, her research centers on uh, measures used by clinicians to characterize lexical semantic abilities within spontaneous language samples. Uh, and so they had uh, a number of studies that have reported a lack of a difference between children with DLD and uh, TLD for length-controlled measures of diversity. Um, and the limited research addresses the sensitivity of lexical diversity to language status at different points in the development. So stay tuned for uh, some of their findings. And they, they used a tool that you often use, Chantal. They use the ENNI. Mm-hmm. And they also produced a second task that would um, be very similar to one of the story retells for the ENNI. But they wanted it to be different enough so that it's not as repetitive, but just to measure, uh, I think there was a pre-test and a post-test, if I understood correctly. So it was fairly interesting to to chat Mm -hmm. with her about that. And, uh, you know, since we're talking about narratives, I did stop by uh, Maura Curran's study or poster from the University of Delaware, Effects of Language Intervention on Expository Retail in Preschool Children with DLD. So, I don't do a lot of expository, well, I don't do any research regarding expository um, sample or language sample analysis, Uh, but I was under the impression that that was more for older kids, so it's nice to see that, uh, so the task here was uh, the kids had to watch an episode of uh, Sid the Scientist, and then they had to, a bit of a retail task there with uh, an expository component, so I thought that that was quite interesting as well. Um, I think it's super interesting because sometimes they, the tasks that we use to measure what we think we're, we're measuring, which is, again, there, there's no absolute. It certainly is up for discussion. Um, they tend to be, we tend to be criticized sometimes for saying, well, you're using a task that really should not be used at that age level, but where uh, narratives have long been thought to be a skill that may only be measured later on. They were really using some expository mm-hmm. narr- narration for younger kids. So uh, it yeah. was refreshing to see that, that we're, we're venturing that, um, yes. that, that guess. And we're trying to see if there's uh, something to, to be discovered at that level. Yeah. And here it was mainly uh, with regards to an intensive course of intervention provided to preschool children with DLD during small group science instruction. So again, hands-on, real-life um or what's the word I'm looking for? Clinically uh, relevant. Yeah, yeah and, and trying to, to bring together what research findings to um, real-life situations in the, in the preschool setting or in the school setting. 
And uh, I'd also give a shout out to Roxane Belanger from Laurentian University, who had a poster on the early identification of children at risk of DLD using validated parent questionnaire. So her research centers on um, the correct identification of a child with DLD using the information provided by parents. Uh, and that's a complex task. And I know Chantal has been doing some work on that as well, where mm-hmm. um, teachers or, or parents may not always be um, uh, a source of information that, um, though they can be a healthy source of information for their child, they have to understand the lingo in the questionnaire. And we're finding there's some discrepancy there. So in terms of um, uh, the information found when we're asking them to, to, uh, to provide data, uh, it's important that they understand the vocabulary used in the questionnaire that may be more familiar to an SLP and not so much to a teacher a, or a parent. A parent. So they're yeah. not completely to blame if, the, if there is a discrepancy there. I think we have a duty to, um, to educate them and to yeah. let them know what we mean by the questions that we're asking. Yeah. Uh, so it was great to see her, uh, her poster mm-hmm. at, this, uh, at this symposium. For sure. So we are now at 47 minutes. Um, I think that there is so much more that can be shared, but you just have to come to SRCLD next year to find out for yourself what this amazing conference has to offer. It is so nice to see all of these researchers in one room studying very similar topics, but also very different topics. Um, so I'm, I'm thrilled this is my first SR, well, both of us, yeah, uh, our first SRCLD conference, and we are very happy so far with the program, and we're learning and um, my brain is is done for the day. It's mush. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's a good thing with it respect is. to this conference. Oh, absolutely. It's, a, it's very, um, it feels very familiar. Everyone is very helpful. Everyone wants to learn about your projects. Uh, you stop to talk to someone at a poster and all of a sudden you're talking about your research and you're not, you haven't even submitted a poster. So I think that there's a lot of networking going on and it's just, uh, it's great news all around. So tomorrow, the last day already, it's gone by so fast. Like I mentioned, we will have um, Tiffany Hogan from the See, Hear and Speak podcast joining us tomorrow as we discuss the um, child language disorder um, terminology um, talk. So stay tuned for that.